united, we can and will overcome. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. In the past two weeks, we have seen Democratic victory in the Georgia Senate runoffs. We have seen insurrection in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump has been impeached again. And on Thursday, Joe Biden will be inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States of America. That is on Thursday, Australia time. Yes, 4am. So at the behest of our producers and also several of my group chats, Emma and I have come back into our makeshift studio at my temporary accommodation in Melbourne, where I will be asking her a few questions about what we can expect on at the inauguration and also what might be beyond our predictions. Emma, I feel like we've been living in unprecedented times and extraordinary times for so long that it's really hard to remember what a normal presidency and indeed a normal inauguration looks like. So can you tell us what inaugurations past have involved? Yeah, sure. I'm, I feel like I've said a lot this week, you know, this will be an inauguration like no other in American history. So it's good to, to think about like what they are quote unquote normally like. Um, so normally they are huge political spectacles. They're kind of touchstone events that often kind of signal the end of one era and the beginning of another because we tend, you know, for better or worse to think of American history in presidential terms, right? So, so usually the new president is is sworn in at around about midday, usually by a Supreme Court justice with their hand on more often than not Abraham Lincoln's Bible. Um, so there's lots of, I guess, there's a big sense of history and occasion that, that goes into this. The president will then give an inauguration speech um, and inauguration speeches have given us some of the most important and iconic presidential speeches in history. So, of course, JFK's ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. All of those big presidential speeches you can think of are inauguration speeches. Then there's there's usually some poetry, some singing, that kind of thing. There's an inauguration parade. Uh, famously, Jimmy Carter was the first president to get out of the car and walk down the mall to, you know, be a kind of man of the people in that sense. So, again, you know, there's lots of kind of traditions that are followed. Then there's usually a often kind of some kind of solemn aspect. So they might visit Arlington Cemetery, for example. And then there's a big celebration. So there's a, a ball, a presidential ball, where, you know, there's usually, depending on who the president is, there's either an awkward dance with the new first lady or, or a very coordinated dance with the first lady. You know, if you're the Obamas, for example, they set a pretty high standard. So it's a really, it's a huge presidential celebration and, depending on the popularity of the president, there are usually, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of people descend on, on Washington, D.C. So they're really, you know, really hugely significant events. Again, I think they, they kind of tend to draw a line under one era and, and start a new one. Um, but again, I'm not sure that's going to happen this time around. Yeah, and the thing that comes to mind for me is the uh, very sparsely attended inaugural for Donald Trump, despite what he said for many many months afterwards yes. and i think is it we've because obviously we've got two extraordinary circumstances surrounding this week's inauguration but the first of all the pandemic which is still raging in the usa and secondly the insurrection insurrection in the capital last week so 
I expect there won't be the sort of inaugural crowds that there normally would be, Trump accepting. What's going to be different this time around? I think a lot of things are going to be different. Like you're right that the the crowd won't be there. They'd always planned, well not always, but from the start they, the Biden team had planned a kind of hybrid event where they have the, the in-person stuff like his big inauguration speech with a, a, a sparse crowd, I think, and then online events. So Tom Hanks is actually hosting a like television um, concert in, in the evening of inauguration. So that's a, that's a thing to watch. Um, <laughs> is it? <laughs> well, I'm going to watch it. Maybe you, <laughs> I'll just send you the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's, so there's that. So there's, there's, there's dealing with a global pandemic, but there are also um, hugely significant security issues coming out of that insurrection in the capital, which was what, a week and a half ago now. So there are something like twenty five thousand members of the, the National Guard on the streets in DC, and there are also really significant concerns about basically insider attacks so we know that the police police forces not just in dc but across the country have basically been infiltrated by white supremacists so the fbi is, is kind of concerned about insider attacks there have also been a number of arrests of people who are, have been planning attacks on the inauguration ceremony with with kind of varying degrees of, of sophistication but i think this is the first time in a long time probably since the civil war where concerns about Violence, which I, I think it's worth saying are always present in American history. Like I've been thinking about this a lot and, you know, I was going back to Barack Obama's inauguration and, and watching that on television and, you know, taking note of the bulletproof glass mm. that's, that's in front of him. So that threat is ever present, I think, in American politics, um, but it is beca- it has become, I suppose, more more real. I'm not sure if that's the right way of describing it, but it, it's become more real now for Joe Biden. So, so there are all of these shadows I guess hanging over this event and I don't think anybody quite knows how how it's going to go how the combination of the the extraordinary grief of the global pandemic and that threat very real threat of violence and and existing violence how the combination of those things is going to overshadow this event yeah yeah and I think you know to hazard a guess around that I'd say that I'd expect that it'll be quite a relatively muted celebration of of the inauguration of Joe Biden and I think that's both something that is absolutely warranted under the circumstances I mean I've got to say I, I saw that JLo was performing at the inaugural and I thought oh, oh god can't you just go inside please protect JLo um so it's not Lady pro- Gaga you're not you're not oh, as worried oh, about I, her I, I didn't know Lady Gaga was there so um, Lady Gaga singing the yeah. national anthem oh okay okay cool um sorry I've been in too many karaoke bars where they're sung that terrible song from a star is born to yeah be big on board with lady gaga these days but that's a digression um i guess what i was going to say is you know it seems it seems appropriate that this will be a muted toned down event but that's something that is totally at odds with what you've described which is the pomp that goes with the inaug- with the inauguration and also i think to an extent the the tone that joe biden is wanting to set for his presidency which is as as kind of a resumption of normality and the restoration of the pride and the, and you know the ceremony that goes with the presidency which is something that Donald Trump really did do his level best to destroy um another question i had for you is i know we we're talking about the inauguration so we're talking about Washington DC should we be concerned in the wake of the insurrection a week and a half ago about other parts of the country come the inauguration and even around in the days surrounding it uh, look, 
Unfortunately, I, I think so. You know, that intelligence agencies like the FBI are suggesting that, that yes, we should be. And I think we, you know, we don't have to go very back, far back in time to, to see very real threats across the rest of the country. So I keep thinking, for example, and, and we've actually spoken about this on the, on the pod before, I keep thinking about Michigan, where a few months ago, the state legislature in, in Michigan was shut down because armed insurrectionists, again, walked into the state legislature with their guns pointed at elected representatives and the state house was shut down because of because of that very real threat so there are certainly pro again quote unquote protests which is a word you keep saying keep saying planned across the country um again whether they amount to anything is really difficult to say and i think it's it's even more difficult especially from outside to tell what the level of organisation is, you know, given that that networks are being shut down, the kind of main apps that these groups, which are very, um, I suppose, dispersed and, and increasingly increasingly factional, you know, how, just how organised they are is, is really difficult to say. But again, I kind of go back to that, that issue, that ongoing issue with violence in American politics where it's not necessarily organisation that's going to be the main factor because... An individual, an armed individual in the United States can cause an extraordinary amount of, of damage. So again, you know, law enforcement seems to be taking this threat much more seriously than they were two weeks ago. Um, how that translates again to, to the actual day. And it, it, I guess the other thing I'd say is that we always have this sense that at the end of the inauguration ceremony, like if we just make it through inauguration unscathed, then it will be okay. Like this is not going away. Yeah, I, no, I absolutely agree. And I think what you're circling around there is one of our favourite words on the podcast, which is contingency. That's and the one. The unexpected events and the un, unexpected combinations and recombinations of events that can make for outcomes that seemed outside of the realm of possibility to, to even informed observers. So let's assume that we, yeah, everyone gets through the inauguration safely. We very much hope that mm. that is the case. What happens next? Because Joe Biden is planning, he's, he's made some pretty clear statements about what he intends to do even on his first day in office. Yeah, he, he absolutely has. He's been signalling for kind of months now what, what he's going to do um, in things like who he's appointing to his COVID-19 task force and things like that. So you kind of, I think you signalled it earlier, Chloe, he, the coronavirus pandemic is his absolute first priority so he will do things he said already he'll do things by executive order like issue a mask mandate mandate where where he is able to do that he's going to concentrate on vaccine rollout and getting as many americans vaccinated as possible in a short space of time because the rollout under the trump administration unsurprisingly has been an absolute shambles so those kinds of things are his priority, but he's also said he's going to reverse a number of Trump's actions like the, the travel ban, the, Muslim, the so-called Muslim travel ban. Um, he's going to get the United States to rejoin the Paris Agreement for climate change by executive order. So he has a fairly full agenda, I think, for those first, you know, the first 100 days, which, um, again, are a kind of, I guess, a political touchstone. And then it will also be things like getting his nominees for, for cabinet secretaries confirmed by the Senate. Yeah, I want to I want to concentrate on that a little bit now because, you know, we're talking we're talking about three very big symbolic statements. And, you know, big symbolic statements, also practical commitments. I'm thinking particularly about a mask mandate on three key issues that, you know, 
that predated the that predated 2020 but are certainly going to be big issues especially in the decade ahead so we're talking about we're talking about the climate crisis we're talking about racial justice and we're also talking about covid relief which is intrinsically connected to reforming the american economy i would you know as a non expert i i would say that you know there are immediate questions around whether these are symbolic gestures or limited practical actions, or if they represent something more thoroughgoing about what Joe Biden plans to do with his presidency. And a lot of the debate about Joe Biden has been about what his presidency represents. Mm. So whether it is a restoration of order and of an order, which again, to anyone who has listened to us regularly will, will know that Emma and I take significant issue with the idea that that was ever some sort of, uh, I guess, sort of goal, there was any, any, any sort of golden age of liberal rule in America, or if we can hope for more radical action from Biden than his legislative record to date would show. So in a very roundabout way, I guess what I'm asking you, Emma, is what do we know about the composition of a forthcoming government in the USA that could tell us about the chances of, you know, a restoration on the one hand or radical action on the other? I think it's very early days. Like it's it's early to make these kind of calls. I think, but but from what I can tell, Biden is trying to walk a line kind of between those two things. So he's doing things like nominating Merrick Garland for Attorney General. I I think again, I hope you've got got all this right, um, which is a kind of signal to centrist because Merrick Garland was Barack Obama's nomination for the Supreme Court, who was supposed to be a kind of acceptable compromise candidate for, you know, moderate Republicans and Democrats, this kind of everybody, everybody can get behind this guy. So that's a kind of signal in that sense, I think. But then there are also signals that Merrick Garland is is somebody who's going to go go after corruption. Um, You know, he's going to be motivated in in that way to kind of seek justice from the Trump administration. So again, it's it's really hard to tell. And with things like climate, you know, signaling so clearly that he that Biden is committed to climate action by recommitting the United States to Paris on the first day, that's a big signal. And a lot of the people he's nominated to climate positions and environmental positions suggest that he's really serious about climate action. And he's doing things like, you know, nominating the first black man to head the Environmental Protection Agency, which again is both symbolically important, but also I think important in that it signals a commitment to progressive action. I think where things may begin to, I guess, disappoint progressives or or people who are hoping for radical action is in places like the Senate where the Democrats do have the majority. And it means that I think getting those nominations through will be relatively straightforward for Biden. But when it comes to legislating the Green New Deal or something like it, which Biden has said he largely supports, that's potentially a really different story because then Biden is somehow going to have to hold together 50 Democratic senators who have very different um, political positions, you know, from West Virginia, where coal mining is culturally, if if not economically significant, through to the more progressive senators like Ed Markey, who co-sponsored the the Green New Deal. So holding that coalition together is going to be a political task in and of itself. Biden is really well placed to do that because of his experience in the Senate. Um, But yeah, I guess this is a kind of a long-winded way of me saying 
both I'm not sure, but also I think Biden will probably lean towards the quote-unquote unity position as opposed to the progressive position. He's signalling that with things like his inauguration speech, which, you know, is being dropped to the media as a, a message of unity. And that's just the kind of guy he is. You know, he's been talking about through this whole tumultuous couple of weeks in American politics, he's been talking about unity and the need to unify, to, to love each other and to heal divisions. And for Biden, I think that means tacking to the, to the centre. Which I think brings me to that other both known and unknown quantity, which is the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. What happens to the Republican Party in the next next the next few months, let alone the, the next few years? Yeah, again, it's early to say, and I, I've seen a lot of takes that are saying, you know, the Republicans are abandoning Trump or the, the party is splitting. Chloe's just rolling her eyes at me. Because, you know, I think that's true. I think it's too early to say. And, and also, we just have to go back to the impeachment vote in the House of Representatives where 10 out of 211 Republicans voted to impeach Trump, right? That gives you a signal of, of where the party stands, I think. Yeah, could you... What's Mitch McConnell's game here? Because he's been doing some some surprising... Well, from my perspective, it's he's surprisingly cautious in the statements he's making around impeachment. Like... He McConnell never really gives much away. I think people yeah. people think that they can read him and game out his strategy, but he actually keeps his cards really close to yeah. his chest. I think that with McConnell, you always have to basically follow power and money. So he will, wherever he thinks the power and the money is going to land, that's where he will be. And he him hedging on Trump, you know, things like saying he's going to um, hold back from making a decision around impeachment until he hears what the arguments are in the trial, et cetera, et cetera, as if he hasn't already made up his mind. Of course he has. That's about money. That's about corporate Republican donors saying we're going to stop donating to the Republican Party until they um, basically come out and say that the election wasn't rigged and Joe Biden's the legitimate president, blah, blah, blah. So if McConnell thinks he's going to lose money and the party's going to lose money, that he'll he'll hedge and he'll abandon Trump in a second um, if it comes down to it. But he also has, you know, one eye on the base and the 70 million plus people who who voted for Trump because I, I still don't think it's clear, you know, if those 70 million voters or what proportion of them and where were voting for Trump and what Trump represents, who among those were voting for the party or voting for particular platforms. So passing all that out, I suppose, is a really difficult task and it requires also putting yourself in a, in a kind of completely different ideological universe well know? yeah yeah no i think um the last thing i want to do or i would say i'm equipped to do is to put myself into mitch mcconnell's shoes but exactly. that's that's you know that that's a task for some poor brave soul yeah. in probably someone in a polside department somewhere. yeah right. so emma i look i mean i know I think I and most of Australia now know what you think about the Australia's relationship with the Trump presidency. Uh, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure I, I got I got a pre-read, but a lot of people would have read your editorial in the Sydney Morning Herald shortly after the insurrection in Washington, in which you made your case for why Australia is complicit in Trumpism. What will happen to Australia's relationship with the USA with Joe Biden in charge? Yeah, so this is this is a big um, 
I suppose it has been a big focus of the Australian media. You know, how, how does this affect us? The first thing I would say is that Biden, again, he's a unity candidate. He, he likes America's allies. He will see and has seen Australia as a friend to the United States. So that underlying basis of the relationship, I don't think will change. And, and there has been a lot of analysis that says, you know, the Australian government's worked with the Obama administration. A lot of the same faces are coming back. So we have this kind of established relationship with the United States, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I, I am of the opinion that um, emotion and perception also matters in diplomacy. So the fact that Scott Morrison went all in with Donald Trump and has been basically the only Western leader of an established democracy not to condemn Trump for what happened in the Capitol, that, that gets noticed, right? The Biden team will notice that. They, they're perceptive. They're good at diplomacy. You know, the fact that Morrison accepted that Legion of Merit medal when diplomatically that could have been avoided without doing any damage to the relationship, that, that stuff gets noticed. And the Biden team, the transition team, has already said that they will push Australia on climate. They're going to push their friends, again, quote, unquote, push their friends on, on climate change. So I don't think we just should assume that the relationship will be straightforward or easy. I think the Biden team knows who and what the Morrison government is and, and what they stand for, which is ideologically much closer to the Trump administration than it is to a, to an incoming Biden administration. But at the same time, I'm, I think I'm right in guessing that we could expect... They're going to demonstrate some rectitude in how they address it. They're going to be much... They're not going to make a show, obviously of what they really think about the Morrison government. I guess, you know, I, I kind of want to to zoom out too because there are some fundamentals to the US-Australia relationship, and that's something you gestured to in your opinion piece, that aren't about these personalities. You know, this I guess this is kind of an argument against the insiderishness or the insider's model of political journalism. There are some fundamentals, there are some strong, it's a strong historic alliance. And there is that bedrock, which all which all these diplomats are going to be walking on. And that's what they're going to be building this new relationship on. And I think, you know, I'm wondering if there are, if there are some more enduring themes in the Australia-US alliance that perhaps the Biden administration will be considering more closely than, say, Trump did. Yeah, for sure. I think I think the Biden administration will be thinking much more strategically than the Trump administration did. And, and they will be looking to the bedrock of that relationship, which, you know, I think we have to be honest about that relationship was born essentially out of war and out of sh- out of fighting shared wars. So it is at heart a security relationship. And the Australian government is already signaling that they're, they're worried about the United States staying engaged in the region, which means essentially having a military presence in the region and a military presence pointed, if not directly, you know, pretty closely towards China. So Biden, in, in a way like Trump, but like previous US administrations, is pretty hawkish on China um, and the, the so-called rising threat of of china which is an assumption that goes kind of unquestioned across um across australia and the united states and i think it's one that i guess i have a a problem with um but you know i guess that's the reality of of how the relationship is constructed it's one constructed uh, as opposed to a rising china and one that needs to contain china and contain china's ambitions 
So I think the Morrison government and the Biden administration will be very much on the same page in in that sense, in terms of the security relationship. Okay, um, a question for you that is might be a little bit unfair because I haven't even flagged this one with you. Do you think a Biden administration would look less kindly than the Trump administration on things like Scott Morrison's open open criticism of China over a tweet? So I think I, I'm just I'm thinking of that because I think that that's probably it's a starting point for a metaphor for how how a different administration in the US might look at Australia. Yeah, okay. I hadn't actually I hadn't considered it that way. I mean, I think Biden Biden is at heart a diplomat. You know, he's a he's a reconciler. He he seeks unity in his politics. So, I imagine they would see that for what it was, which was some pretty poor diplomacy. Um, you know, it was basically falling into a very clearly laid trap by by the Chinese government. So, I think he would be frustrated by the kind of amateurish nature of of the way that the Australian government approaches its relationship with China. But having said that, Biden, again, is pretty hawkish on China. Like that's a bipartisan, one of the very few bipartisan consensus um, that goes on in American politics even more generally is the kind of need to contain China both from a security standpoint but also economically to to kind of dominate economically and to I guess rail against you know China's um, economic dominance and and the way that China supposedly takes advantage of the United States and of, of Australia as well but I also think Biden will be kind of maybe less patient with with Australia's failure to recognise the changing economic landscape when it comes to China. You know, the fact that Australia, China's basically said it's going to stop buying Australian coal and so Australian coal is like stranded in ships, you know, off, off China, the Chinese coast. I think the Biden administration would kind of, you know, maybe I'm projecting too much, but I, I can imagine the Biden administration being like, well, Yes, like like this, you know, we have been signalling for a long time that we are on board with shifting our economic base from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And if you are choosing to ignore that, then kind of that's basically that's your problem. You're going to be left behind. And they've also even signalled that, you know, if Australia continues to to drag the chain when it comes to climate action, that Biden will perhaps be more hesitant to accept an invitation to Australia for the 70th anniversary of the ANZUS of the security treaty, which is, which happens in September. Yeah. So, you know, there's potential diplomatic fallout. Yeah. And if we want to talk about gestures, that would be, that would be a disaster. So I guess, I guess what, what I'm hearing here is that the Biden administration will perhaps be no less hawkish than Trump. It'll be more consistent. It will be, and I hate using this word in reference to politics. It's always used by my enemies. It'll be more more competent. Yeah. Yeah. And more more professional. I think so. Look, I think it will be much more um, standard liberal American diplomacy, um, but which will not involve any kind of reevaluation of the United States role in the world. You know, Biden's been very clear that he wants America to resume its position of global leadership and, and host summits on climate action and yeah. democracy and et cetera, et cetera. You know, Trump, Trump hasn't prompted a um, deep reflection. Of- yeah. Which, you know, which makes me think that perhaps it's on at one level, 
especially when it comes to climate action, it's more much going to be much more cognizant and willing to acquaint itself with global realities, but still subject to you know, the same old American American illusions. And that question, I think, of American liberalism is a really interesting one because when we're talking about self or, or, you know, reflecting on the United States' role in the world and our own complicity, one of the things that I think has been much spoken about, at least in Australian media, um, is are those links between Australia and the United States when it comes to white supremacy? So, So beneath the level of diplomacy and governments, the way that our media and political culture interact to kind of reinforce... The, the re-rise, I guess, of white supremacy in in both our countries. And and obviously, Chloe, this is kind of where we are, are straying into your areas of expertise. And I think it's, again, you know, I, I think there are real questions about how, how Biden and his administration will deal with this. But to go back to that issue and, you know, whether if we just get through inauguration, like everything will be kind of fine and, and Biden can just get on with it. I am, I'm really interested in what you think about the role that the far right will continue to play if it will continue to play a role in the biden administration like is this was this just like i saw somebody describe them as like maga nerds like are they just going back to their basements or do you think this is an ongoing thing that biden is somehow going to have to try and deal with well i guess with you know and i mean the reason you're asking me emma is because i have spent far too much time looking at fascism in my in my professional life and yeah, I, I saw that that you know those descriptions of the insurrectionists last week and their actions describing them as maga hats and describing their actions as social media performers and my answer to that so the caveat on this is that I'm not an expert in the particularities of American politics but knowing what I do about movements and about the right the first thing I would say to that is that performance has always been a part of movements. Movements have never just been pure expressions of material interests or of political ideology. I mean, the suffragettes, bad comparison I know, but suffragettes, they pioneered performance in in protest. Mm-hmm. So did the KKK. Performance is it's intimately tied up with movements and movement politics. And I think that that is something that a lot of the very confident people who are talking about, you know, very quick to interpret what happened two Wednesdays ago have missed is that their analysis hasn't got to grips with the performance. And also, I think, kind of the particularities of Trumpism's performances, which is its use of irony and, I dare say, humour. So, you know, I think, I think that it is kind of a disabling action by these by these insurrectionists to turn up in costume to sort of lounge around in the you know in the capital and look like they're not doing much like it is just fun and games because it it disarms their critics so this is the kind of you know when when trump says something like deeply racist and then says oh no that's not what i meant you just misinterpreted i was actually joking or yeah. you know well I- it's it's that it's also the esteemed abc journalist sarah ferguson apparently interrogating steve bannon about his record of white supremacism and finding that there is nothing in his background or in his you know in his like quoted statements to like make her perceive him as a racist that's because until, you know, until after 2018, Steve Bannon was an expert in being racist by a wink and a nod. And I think that's why, you know, 
a lot of critics will look for undeniable evidence of racism, of commitment to white supremacy, and they will miss that because they're concentrating on jokes. The jokes, and the jokes are what are enabling these movements. Sure, okay. And because that also, I guess, conveys an aura of incompetence like this narrative that they got into the capital and then didn't really know what to do like there was no plan yeah and that's you know and that was a lot of people's immediate reaction to the events two Wednesdays ago it was this was they didn't know what they were doing what we found out in the two weeks since is that there was actually a fairly high level of planning involved and there was a level a serious level of threat we don't know what happened to AOC because she has as is her right and as seems to be the best thing she can do legally she hasn't actually detailed why she was in fear for her life during the insurrection at the Capitol, but there's no reason not to believe her on that. Yeah, totally. So, you know, all the evidence is showing that this was not a... This wasn't a joke. It wasn't just an expression of, you know, the dying flames of Trumpism. It was serious, but the joke is also something that we need to take seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we have to, as as difficult and apparently contradictory as it is, we have to hold those two things in our head at once. Which I guess brings me to my next question, which is, which again, probably unfair, which is like, what do we do about it? Well, I don't know. But I would say that one of the standard responses to, to this, well, there's, first of all, there's a standard response, which is to just dismiss it as a joke. And that's not correct. Mm-hmm. The second response is to reassert, you know, reassert these eternal truths of American life. And that is, I think, where liberals can get, you know, can get caught off guard because what part of the joke that is being played by Trumpism is to show up the very real failures of that American liberal settlement. Like, you know, you can't, you can't talk about how we're going to have American unity and we're going to have an American restoration and America has never, you know, this, this isn't America, when what Trumpism has shown, if anything, is that this is America. Like, that this, is, this is an America that has, you know, that hasn't served many of its citizens well for a long time and there are real grievances, you know, not the grievances of Trumpism, but they, they are alighting on things that are very, very wrong in the American Republic. So simply defending it as something that is okay if we just eject these sort of outliers, that's, that's, that seems to me it's, it's obviously not going to work because it just it makes the lie of American liberalism more apparent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, again, it, it, it attempts, I think, quite deliberately to obscure that long history of, of white supremacy in, yes. in, in the United States, yeah. where it's kind of dismissing, again, dismissing that as a, as a fringe issue rather than looking at the long historical roots. Well, and that's, you know, that's the other thing that came up when people were trying to very quickly decide what the insurrection meant. You know, you had people on the one hand who were saying it was the end of Trumpism, which I don't agree with. They were, there are also people who are saying it's the beginning of American fascism. And, you know, I've been involved in too many debates on the internet over the past week about whether or not this is fascism. I'm just not going to go there anymore. It hurts my brain. But what I would say to that is whether or not you're going to call it fascism, you can't say it's the beginning of white supremacy. You can't say it's the beginning of the far right in America because that is something that has it has always been with America. It is constitutive of America. And I think that's, you know, we don't know what happens to Trumpism without their chief enabler in the White House around anymore to you know, sort of endorse them with a wink and a nod. But I would hazard that, you know, and as a historian, just to pick out one thing that perhaps we can do about it, 
maybe we do need to have some sort of serious reckoning with the legacy of white supremacy and the, the current reality of white supremacy. And that's something that really did kick off with the Black Lives Matter Matters protest last year. So I guess, you know, we've now spent the last half hour or so uh, comprehensively saying we don't know to a whole lot of tricky <laughs> questions about the American presidency, the about America and yeah. about the inauguration. But Emma... I mean, you are a very informed observer of American politics, so are many of our listeners. What do you think people should be looking out for on Thursday if they want to get a sense of where Joe Biden's America is going? Well, I mean, the obvious one, the obvious answer to that is the speech, because the speech kind of signals the nature of the administration going forward. Like I said, it, it's kind of meant to draw a line under a political era, which is why Trump's inauguration speech, American Carnage... You, you know, is so important in, in, I think, defining the Trump era as much as that that era is not over. So the obvious thing is the speech. But Biden also isn't a, a great speech maker. You know, I, he's kind of signaled that he's going to talk about unity. So that's pretty much what we can expect. You know, I think we'll, we'll hear from Biden what we've heard all along. So I don't think the speech is going to particularly stand out. For me, it will be watching the the i guess the emotional tone of of the event you know how much of it is about grief and mourning and how much of it attempts at some kind of joy or hope because that mix is going to be very difficult to get right i think and the other thing i'll be watching really closely is is law enforcement like how the the extraordinary security presence on the ground in DC and potentially in other state capitals, how that plays out both in a kind of practical sense, but again, in, in the feeling coming out of, of this event, because I think, I suspect at least you will hear from the major kind of liberal cable networks about how, you know, America as war zone, or I'm a reporter who's covered Baghdad and Kabul. And, you know, that's what I'm used to seeing there, not here in America, that kind of, you know, this is not America idea, which again, as we've hopefully made clear is um, problematic to like put it, put it mildly. So I suppose that's what I'll be watching out for. And then of course, you know, we'll be watching Trump. He apparently, I did a radio interview this morning where I was informed that Trump is planning some kind of concurrent event, some kind of farewell event, which I was not across, but it will be interesting, not so much for that event because we know what Trump is and and what he does, but how the media covers Mm. Trump, how the media, if the media pivots to, to Biden and attempts to go back to some kind of, you know, again, quote unquote, normal um, media coverage. Which I guess, again, is a a long-winded way of me saying, I'm not exactly sure what's going to (laughs) happen. Is that any kind of it? Well, look, Emma, I will say that, you know, you've been been more right than you've been wrong about America. So I think the lesson I'm taking from that is watch the speech, listen for the emotional cues, but also take the event in its totality and don't be surprised by the unexpected. Yeah, I think that is the lesson out of the last five years of American politics, if there are any. Hold up. 